I think I would be safe in saying that every one of us who has made a genuine commitment to follow Christ is all too familiar with the battle for good and evil that rages inside of us. If we are Christ followers, we are very familiar with that battle. We're all familiar with that invisible but very real force that constantly tries to pull us away from God and turn our hearts to other things. And today we come to the book of Judges in our Through the Bible study. And to say that this is an unusual book would be perhaps the understatement of the year. There are pastors who will not teach from the book of Judges, not because they don't believe it's God's word, but because they're just too afraid to tackle it. And I understand that fear. Judges is a gruesome account of the horrific acts of violence and evil that God's people committed against others and against themselves. It is a violent book that honestly parts of it uh, I would blush to read in a congregation with boys and girls present. It is a disturbing, unsettling book. Some people think perhaps it's best to skip over it. I think the exact opposite. There's a reason God put this in his word. And the reason for it being here has not been lost on history. It is more relevant to us today and to our lives than we might ever imagine. And so we begin looking at this unusual book today, and if we're honest, we'll have to say that we have no trouble at all identifying with and relating to the ups and downs of the people in this book. As we saw last time, in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua was about to die, and he gave his final speech to the people of Israel. He urged them to choose to follow the Lord rather than choosing to follow idols, which they had a history of doing. He warned them clearly, as they had been warned a hundred times before, that if they turned away from God to serve other gods, they would come under God's fierce judgment. And we saw how the people were very quick to say last time, yes, we're on board, we're definitely going to follow God and serve him, but you'll remember how I pointed out that there was an ominous sense of foreboding in those closing words of the book of Joshua that we saw in Joshua 24, 31, where it said, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Those words give us a hint of what was to come, that God's people were only going to serve him for a while, and then things would change. In fact, those words are so important to what's going to happen next, that they're repeated word for word in Judges chapter 2, verse 7. The last two chapters of Joshua sort of overlap with the first two chapters of the book of Judges. The author of Judges 
does a quick summary, a repeat of some of those events. In fact, Joshua 1 and 2 provide a recap of the end of Joshua, and they provide a summary, especially Judges chapter 2, as we'll see, provides a summary of the entire book of Judges. So if you want to know what the whole book of Judges is about, we'll find that in a moment in chapter 2. So as Judges opens, let me remind you, the people have now finished their journey. They are now living in, settled in the promised land, and they're enjoying the blessings of God. And at first glance, everything seems fine. But we remember how earlier, over and over again, God had given them very clear instructions to completely drive out all the pagan nations that lived in that land, because God knew that if they were left there, those heathen people would begin to influence the people of Israel and cause them to turn away from him. And Israel started out really good. They did exactly what God said at first. They drove those pagan nations out. But as you follow the story through, you see that they began to back off of their obedience and not follow God completely in that instruction. They had already driven out a lot of the pagan nations, but there were still some that they hadn't dealt with. So the first chapter shows us how as the people obeyed God, he was with them. He gave them victory just as he had promised. Judges 1.1, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Verse 4, Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. It's going well. Verse 8, then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And so we see this process continuing. As long as they obeyed God, he was with them, and he gave them the victory just like he said he would. But as time went on, their commitment to obey God started to slip. And you get to verse 21 of chapter 1, and we read this. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And you might think at first, well, it's not that big of a deal, is it? I mean, these people did obey God several other times before. So what's wrong with having just one area of disobedience in your life? That's not a really big deal, is it, Phil? Well, here's the danger in that. Sin always puts you on a slippery slope. Every act of disobedience makes the next act easier. It's not quite as shocking to our senses. It's not quite as jolting to our conscience, to our spirit. It gets a little easier and a little easier. Every time we tolerate sin one, it's a little easier to carry out sin two, and then even a little easier to carry out sin three, and so on. Now you get down to verse 27. You want to watch this snowball beginning to build from a little act of disobedience. Watch this, verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, 
or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or Akzib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. Verse 32, so the Asherites lived among them. The inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites. And what we see is God had told these people to completely drive these pagans out, but the Israelites came up with what they thought was a better plan. They said, hey, we've got a great idea. Instead of driving these idol worshipers out like God said, let's keep them around and make them work for us. That's just as good, don't you think? I mean, don't you think that's a really creative and enterprising plan? It's like a two-for-one deal. We don't have to go to all the hassle of going to battle, and we get free labor. So in their minds, they thought, they were doing something that was just as good as what God had specifically told them to do. But listen, God is never pleased with partial disobedience. Look at what the response is from God in Judges chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? God takes a moment here to do what he's done many, many times before, and he first reminds them of all the things that he has done for them in the past, delivering them from Egypt, leading them all the way through the wilderness, and bringing them into the promised land. They're now living in houses they didn't have to build. They're eating from crops that they didn't have to plant. God is literally showering them with blessings. And you would think, you would think that after all that, the people of Israel would get the point, and they'd say, there's no God like our God. We are going to serve him and him alone. You'd think that would be the next chapter of the story, but it's not. Instead, the book of Judges gives us the sad account of just how quickly those very people start taking God's goodness for granted and turn away from him to please and to serve other gods. I saw an example of this just two days ago on Friday in my own office. Our dog, Teddy, has a particular bone that he absolutely loves. And 
We don't give him these bones very often because they're special treats and they're not really cheap. But he hadn't had one in quite a while, and so I gave one to him on Friday. And whenever he gets one of these, he will, he will chew on this bone for two hours and his tail will never stop wagging the entire time. Only, only momentarily, once in a while, he'll, he'll take a break and he'll flip over on his back and he'll do his happy dance on the floor and just wiggle all over the place. I mean, he is in heaven when he gets one of these. And I gave him one out of the goodness of my heart. Pure kindness on my part. He had done no backflips or anything to earn this. I just gave him one because I wanted to see him happy. I wanted to see him enjoying it. And shortly after I gave it to him, I had to leave my office for just a few minutes to get something. And when I returned, I found that Teddy had left his bone and he had gone and rooted through the trash can and he was now eating a discarded piece of paper. I couldn't believe it. He chose to leave the most wonderful thing that he could ever imagine receiving in his life. The thing that brings him joy and fulfillment and pleasure. He left that. As soon as I turned my back, he left that best thing and he traded it for trash. And in a sense, that's exactly what the Israelites did to God. God had blessed them with more than they could ever have wanted, but they turned right around and they started rooting through the trash of life to serve idols instead. God said, if you'll just follow me, if you'll just obey me, like guys, this is not super complex. It's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. This is really pretty simple. If you'll just obey me, if you'll just follow me, you're going to enjoy this incredible land filled with my blessings. I'll protect you and I'll watch over you for as long as you live. That was God's promise of blessing. But that promise, as I said, also came with a flip side. God also promised them that if you forsake me, my judgment will fall upon you. We get to verse 3, and we see God reminding them of this. He said, so now I say, I will not drive them out, that's your enemies, from before you, but they will become thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And that's precisely what we see unfolding through the rest of the book of Judges. I mean the whole thing from here on out. They disobeyed, and they suffered the consequences. And there were some natural consequences of their decisions that they suffered, and there were also some judgments of God that were specifically brought down upon them because of their disobedience. They suffered the consequences. But the consequences ended up having far greater devastation than they could ever have imagined. You know why? Listen, because our sin never affects just us. Our sin always ultimately affects someone else. And Judges 2:10 is one of the verses that sets the stage for this entire book. It's a horrible verse. 
But here's what it says. After all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, in other words, after all that generation had died, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How is it possible? How is it possible that after God had made himself known to the previous generation in such profound ways. He had shown them miracles. He had blessed them. He had led them. He had fed them. He had provided their every need. How is it possible that the very next generation did not know the Lord? It's because that first generation failed to pass down their faith. Oh, they were busy with religious rituals. They were good church-going folk in the language of our day. So from outward appearances, it looked like they had it all together. They were going through all the religious rigmarole. But in the midst of all that, they failed to pass down their faith to the next generation Ronald Reagan said freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day, we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. And folks, listen, that's not just true of our national freedom. That's true of our spiritual freedom as well. Listen, when, when one generation tolerates sin, the next generation will embrace it. Mark that down. When one generation tolerates sin, the next generation will embrace it. And they will become ensnared and entrapped by it. And that's what we see starting to happen in the very next verse. There is this sudden gut-wrenching change in the tone of this narrative starting in verse 11. It says, And the children of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. This is something you can study on your own if you're interested, but we, we read this and we think, oh, well, they got interested in idols. They got interested in Baal and Asheroth. But when you study what those gods were all about, the gods of fertility, and what it would have required for these people to truly worship those gods, to go to the pagan temple and to be involved in sexual rituals. This was not a minor, casual departure from the ways of God. This was a total submersion into the ways of Satan. And the remaining verses in chapter 2 give us an outline of this repeating cycle that takes place throughout the rest of the book of Judges. In fact, if you, if you want to know what the book of Judges is all about, what I've put together for you here on the screen next will give you a picture of what you need to know about the entire book of Judges. It's all summed up in this 
cycle. Step one, the people rebel and turn away from God to follow other gods. Step two, God hands them over to their enemies to punish them. Step three, the people cry out to God for help. Step four, God has mercy on them. What an unbelievable thing it is to even be able to say that. God has mercy on them. Step five, God sends someone called a judge to deliver them. Now, this judge is not what we think of, of someone in a long black robe sitting in a courtroom with a gavel. That's not it at all. This word judge simply means deliverer or savior. So God sends someone to deliver them. Step six, they enjoy a time of peace. And what have I told you is our most threatening temptation in times of peace when things are good. It's to get comfortable and complacent and forget God. And what we see happening is every time they get back to a place of peace, a little time goes by, and once again, they turn away from God and they go through the cycle over and over and over and over again throughout this entire book. Now let's look at chapter 2 because this process that you see on the screen is really important. Now I've shown it to you sort of in picture form. I want us to read the verses behind this so that you can really see this and really understand what's taking place in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2 verse 13, they abandoned the Lord. Wow, they abandoned the Lord and served Baal and Asheroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Verse 15, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered him. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. And here's the thing that we see is as you go through Judges and this cycle plays out over and over again, not only does it repeat itself, but it gets worse with every cycle. If you could chart the, the book of Judges, not only would you have these cycles repeating over and over again, but the, the chart would trend downward, more and more degenerate, more and more evil. Because folks, that's what sin does. No man ever said, my goal in life is to be a drug addict. No little girl ever played with her 
dolls at home and dressed up in a princess dress, dreaming of becoming a prostitute. That's not how sin works. Sin starts out small. And then, as I said, it gets easier and easier, and it snowballs and it snowballs until you and I are totally entrapped by sin. And we've become people we don't even recognize. Ravi Zacharias said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. And those words could easily serve as the official introduction to the book of Judges. Because by the time you read the end of the book, God's people are no longer fighting their enemies. They're slaughtering each other. How in the world could this happen? What could possibly take God's people to such a low point of depravity? The answer is summed up in one sentence, in one verse of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That verse is so important, it's also the very last verse in the book of Judges. Because by the time you get to the end of this book, the people have not seen the error of their ways. They have not repented and turned to God. They are fully off course. And God repeats this verse as sort of the the final statement to sum all of this up. You know what the people are still doing? They're still doing what is right in their own eyes. God was supposed to be their king. And if they had followed God, none of what we read in Judges would have ever happened, but they chose to reject God's laws. They chose to live by whatever felt good, whatever felt right to them. And folks, that is always the beginning of man's downfall. Because apart from God, listen to me, apart from God, Man's moral compass is completely broken. Without God, our our basis for truth and reality come from our emotions, our passions, our lust. That's where they come from. There's no other source. This is why the simplest argument in the world against someone who is a postmodernist who says "There's, there's no definite standard of truth. There's no absolute standard of truth. And I say to them, are you absolutely sure about that position? And you say to them, so it would be okay then if someone felt it was right to break into your house tonight and rape your wife and murder your family. That would be okay with you. What are you, crazy? Of course not. Why not? Well, it's wrong to do that, is it now? Based on whose standard? Well, it's against the law. What's the law based on? You see, and you keep pressing further and further and further back, and everything we believe as individuals and as a society has to be based on some standard. This is why I keep pointing you back to the book of Genesis. It is our basis for everything in society. If God's standards of morality and right and wrong and good and evil are removed, Everything crumbles. No laws can stand. It all goes out the window. 
Man's reasoning without God is always, always, always skewed. I don't know if you ever read any of Francis Schaeffer's books, but he wrote uh, what's become called the trilogy, just an epic series of three books. It's not the easiest reading in the world, but listen, he dives into this at a, a sort of an atomic level. And if you're interested in this at all, if this is a subject that, that intrigues you at all, and you really want to get to the foundations of this, I think Francis Schaeffer wrote probably the greatest works that will ever be written in the history of mankind on this topic of the depravity of man apart from the moral standards of God. The book of Judges reveals in sickening detail the waywardness and the utter depravity of man. This book is filled with the most disgusting acts of violence that anyone could ever imagine human beings committing. These people who were supposed to be God's treasured possession. These people who were supposed to be a royal holy priesthood to display God's glory to the nations. You can hardly believe the depths of evil that they're capable of. And here's the problem. We tend to distance ourselves from the depravity that we see in these people. We're smug enough to say, well, I would never be capable of something like that. Really? I don't promote Jordan Peterson as a follower of Christ, but one of the most profound thinkers of our day. Peterson has made some statements on this topic just from his psychological studies over the years of comparing himself and the average person today to Adolf Hitler. And you interview the average person and say, would you be capable of doing what Hitler did? Absolutely not. That's despicable. I couldn't imagine anybody ever doing such a thing. And you see, we've lulled ourselves into a lie of thinking that somehow our sin is better than Hitler's. That we're somehow better people than he was. I'm going to tell you what, the, sin, the, the heart of man is desperately wicked, the Bible says. Who can know it? You can't, that's for sure. I can't. My heart surprises me all the time. All the time. You're looking at a guy who truly longs to follow Christ. And yet, some of the things that come out of me sometimes are shocking. Some of the things I say to my wife in a moment of frustration shame me. And don't look at me like it doesn't happen to you, because it happens to you, doesn't it, buddy? Yeah, it does. Some of the thoughts that flash through my mind horrify me. If we could play them on the screens, you'd fire me right now. Or would you? As I said, the further you get into this book, the worse the people get. But here's the incredible thing, and we're going to see more of this next week, God willing. It's not just the sin of the people that get worse and worse. It's the sin of the judges who deliver them 
that get worse and worse. These judges are sick, depraved people. Half of these people you wouldn't leave alone with your daughter in a room. And these are the people God used to deliver his people. Judges is an exhausting book to read. And it's meant to be exhausting. It's meant to wear us out as we read it. Because it's teaching us some vital, vital lessons about ourselves and what we're capable of. First, it's teaching us that as we observe how easily these Israelites are drawn away from God and drawn into sin, surely our response could never be one of detachment and shock and surprise as though we can't relate to that at all. Anyone who reads the book of Judges and walks away shaking their head in disgust and disbelief at what those people were capable of doing has missed the point of the book of Judges. Instead, as we look at these repeating patterns of sin, it should feel a little to us like looking in a mirror. Because the same battle of good and evil that we see raging in their hearts rages in ours as well. Second, it's teaching us that just as they needed someone to come and rescue them from themselves, so too we need someone to come and rescue us from us. We all need rescue. But as much as a human judge to deliver Israel was a wonderful provision of God, it wasn't enough, and it wasn't meant to be enough. Because the one thing no human judge could do was to deliver Israel from Israel. And that's what I really need. I don't just need to be rescued from outside temptation. I need to be rescued from me. We sometimes spend our lives blaming our failures and our sins on the things around us that pulled us down. But folks, until we get honest and look in the mirror and say, my problem is me. My problem is my heart. My problem is my tendency to wander from God. My problem is my sin. We'll never actually begin dealing with the problem until we do that. And so... What the book of Judges is, is a cry for another judge. It's a cry for another Savior. Because we see in this book that not only are the people depraved, but the ones who come to rescue them are depraved as well. They are not the ultimate saviors. They are not the ultimate judge. They're not the ultimate deliverer. And so all of this is a cry For another judge who would come. Not one who will deliver us from our temporal circumstances, but one who can save our soul from sin. Because my wandering will never end until I am finally delivered from me. And I want to end this morning by saying that that judge has come, and his name is Jesus. And because he died on the cross and paid the debt 
for the sins of mankind. He alone, he alone holds the power to save us from our sin. And that's what the book of Judges will teach us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.